if you're in the chat room now, um, you should, if you, I can post this again, but so far I just have the, uh, the, the title of the message, let all you do be done in love. That's from 1 Corinthians 16, 14. And then um, the, the missionary organization that we're going to be featuring this, this month, which is Chosen People Ministries, great organization that ministers to the Jewish people. I'm preaching the gospel to them uh, here and all around the world. Okay, with that, let's begin by praying together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for always providing ways for us to gather together, to have to hear the word preached, to be with one another. We uh, This morning, we're with each other in spirit, though not in body. We ask this morning, Father, for your protection, your healing touch, and any, any of us that are suffering physically, emotionally, mentally, financially, family-wise, whatever. We just ask that you're your healing hand, and we know that you will always do what's best for us, and we just put it in your hands. We also want to pray, Father, for the persecuted church around the world. We want to pray, Father, that they may be strengthened by the hope and by the love you have for them, and also by the uh, good deeds and uh, and uh, prayers that they should be receiving from the uh, Christians around the world. And we ask also today, Father Holy Spirit, Father, to guide and direct our participation today from the preaching of the Word of God to our fellowshipping with one another. We're not singing today, but we are going to sing in our hearts. And who knows, the pastor may sing too. I know everyone's saying, Father, God forbid, but we'll see. And we ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, if you would begin today, and we're going to be, of course, once again in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. If you could turn now to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 10, and I'm going to try my hand at what I'm going to try to do today. I think I can do it. There we go. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, starting in verse 10. By the way, we are going to celebrate the Lord's Supper next Sunday, and hopefully we're all back together again. Um, keep that in mind. It'll be at the end of service as we normally have it. <coughs> all right, let's begin. <laughs> Let all you do be done in love. 1 Corinthians 16.10. Now, whenever Timothy comes, see that he is with you without cause to be afraid, for he is doing the Lord's work, as I also am. Let no one despise him, but send him on his way in peace, that he may come to me, for I expect him with the brethren. But concerning Apollos, our brother, I encouraged him greatly to come to you with the brethren. And it was not at all his desire. That's terrible translation. We'll see that after. It was not at all his desire to come now, but he will come when he has opportunity. Be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanas, that they were the first fruits of Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves for ministry to the saints, and that you also be in subjection to such men and to everyone who helps in the work and in the labors. I rejoice over the coming of Stephanas and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they have supplied what was lacking on your part, for they have refreshed my spirit and yours. Therefore, acknowledge such men. Now, last Sunday, we saw that Paul, at the beginning of this chapter, 
he addressed really two things. He addressed the collection for the saints, and he also addressed his, up, addressed his upcoming travel plans. Now, this week he's going to talk about other, other people's travel plans a little bit, namely Timothy and uh, Apollos. So we're going to we'll see that. But um, I'm just stumbling a little bit. Oh, there's chat's right in front of me. Here we go. All right. So this week, as we move to verses 10 to 18, Paul is going to continue to give instructions. He's going to give them instructions on three things. First, on how to be good hosts, no matter what's going on in the congregation, how to, be, how to extend hospitality to missionaries and to those doing the Lord's work. He's also going to teach them, challenge them to recognize what real leadership is. They had some false ideas about what makes a good leader. He's going to correct that. And then the third thing, and we saw it in the title today, he is going to instruct them that no matter what you do, do it in love or put on love. So this morning we begin with Timothy. Now, Timothy, just briefly, he was Paul's protege. He was the next generation. He would be the one to whom Paul would pass the torch when it was his time to be with the Lord. He was with Paul in many different places. He's a listed as a co-writer on several of Paul's letters. He was a really, really important person in Paul's life. He was younger than Paul. And now he is being sent on a really difficult mission. Um, you can imagine, I mean, from, from all that we've learned about the nature of the church in Corinth at that time, you can see that anybody, any, especially any, any stranger or any person that's not part of the community, um, stepping in there with all of what was going on, all the conflicts, all the divisions, all of the rivalries, all of the uh, intensity of feeling about who's 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 going to be under which preacher and so forth. Paul is, is going to have. I mean, Paul is sending Timothy on a really, really difficult mission, and he knows it, which is why he is uh, going to prepare the church there to be good hosts, to be taking care of Timothy in the, as he comes and as he says, does the, does the Lord's work. So what is he going to do? Well, the first thing he's going to do is he's going to insist that the Corinthians treat Timothy in a dignified manner. Look at verse 10, 1 Corinthians 16, 10. We'll start again there. Now, if Timothy comes, see that he is with you without cause to be afraid, for he is doing the Lord's work, as I also am, so that no one despise him, but send him on his way in peace so that he may come to me, for I expect him with the brethren. By the way, that word if, now if Timothy comes, that is not implying uncertainty. A better translation would be whenever Timothy comes, because Paul is confident that, that Timothy's going to arrive, but of course, in that day and age, travel could be real treacherous. There could be a lot of um, things that could cause somebody to be delayed, and that he doesn't know whether that will happen to Timothy or not, we do know that uh, he knew that his letter of 1 Corinthians, which we've been studying, would arrive in Corinth before Timothy did. And so he would have, he would have this opportunity with the letter to help uh, pre prepare smooth the way, as it were, for his protege, Timothy. But th in this section, in chapter, 10 verses, chapter 16, verses 10 to 11, he's basically insisting that the Corinthians treat Timothy in a dignified manner dignified manner because of who he is, not because of his personality or his upbringing, but for who he represents and what he's doing, what his mission is 
in Corinth. They should treat him in a dignified manner, as a dignitary, as it were. He's doing the Lord's work, as is Paul. So in this uh, two-verse section, he is, Paul is going to make three requests of the Corinthians three, in, in connection with Timothy. Three requests in connection with Timothy. The first one is that they should allow him to do his work. The Lord has given him work to do. Let him do it without being harassed, without being hassled. Because you can imagine that, that we know that this congregation uh, thinks nothing of challenging Paul, of doing outrageous things and boasting about him. They would be well set up to really give Timothy a hard time, which would get in the way of him accomplishing the mission that Paul and the Lord had given him to accomplish. So that's the first thing he, he says. He says, see that he is with you without cause to be afraid, for he is doing the Lord's work as I also am. Some people want to fo focus on Paul, uh, Timothy being afraid. That's the wrong way to look at this. Notice he says cause. Don't do anything. It's, your, it's the behavior of the Corinthians that is on trial here, not, not Paul, uh, Timothy's courage. He's saying, listen, don't do anything that would make anybody be afraid or anybody feel like they can't continue doing what they're doing. It's, it's their behavior that he's targeting. So that's the first request that he makes. Now the second one, and we can see that as well here, is that they shouldn't despise him. They shouldn't despise him. Now what's going on with that? Well, let's think about what is going on in the again in the church at that time in Corinth. Okay, why would they despise Timothy? Think about that for a second. Well, first of all, when we see that word despise, it does carry the uh, connotation. Of think, of think little of, of be hostile towards. But it's really, the Greek word just means to disregard. Disregard. Think nothing of. In other words, ah, you know, Timothy, we don't have to listen to him. Um, he, what he's doing isn't that important. He's a nobody. You know, Paul didn't have the guts to come himself, so he's sending this, you know, second stringer and so forth. Despise, disregard, think little of. Now, here we have to put ourselves a little bit in Paul's shoes. Now, think about what we've seen in this letter so far. His letter is filled with what? If you think about, if you think about it, Paul, what he's written to the Corinthians, and I want you to think about what would cause them to be hostile. What would cause them to want to give Timothy a hard time and interfere with him getting his work done, his mission done? Um, well, first of all, as we've studied in detail, 1 Corinthians is filled with rebukes. He challenges them in some very sensitive areas, by the way. Their sexuality, their habits of going to prostitutes, their habits of going and dining in idols, temples, and so forth, and many other things as well. Their attitude towards the have-nots and the Lord's Supper. He's rebuking them again and again. And he's also demanding that they change their ways. And that is going to create conflict, especially when you're trying to accomplish that in a congregation full of of arrogant people, which this congregation was full of. So one of the reasons why he's concerned about Timothy's reception is because he is writing a letter that he's about to send that's filled with rebukes and demands to change their ways, change their behavior. Now he knows that, that if that letter gets a, a bad reception, and by the way, he knew and we know that, that there's a good chance that it will. There's a good chance that that letter gets a lousy reception when they read it. Now, what does that mean? Well, it kind of means that there's more rejecting of Paul, of Paul going on. 
What does that have to do with Timothy? Well, they're, they're hostile towards Paul, but he's not going to be there. So they're going to they're gonna go out to the person that's most closely associated with Paul that they can get their hands on. Okay? And that would be Timothy. All right? So their hostility towards Paul that would be worsened by the contents of this letter if they don't, they're not humble. And we know they're not humble. Um, that would cause lots of trouble for Timothy when he arrives in Corinth. Timothy has a job to do. This is the key to understanding this. He's got a job to do. He's being sent to do a job. He's being sent in a hostile setting, hostile situation. But he should be left alone. They should put aside their pettiness, their arrogance, and understand that this guy has a job to do. It's from the Lord. It's from Paul. He should not be accosted and attacked by any self-centered and vengeful people. All right. He is he is on the, he is doing the Lord's work. He is living out the calling in his life. He shouldn't be uh, attacked by anybody in that congregation who is hostile, self-centered and vengeful. In addition to that, in addition to their recognizing that he's doing the work, you see, they should give him the proper respect. He's a servant of the Lord. He's coming on Paul's behalf, but really the Lord is sending him. If that that's the bottom line. And so the way they treat the ambassador, I mean, we have this going on now with, with China and the United States, and both countries are treating their envoys in a not too good way right now. Why? Because it's a reflection on the country and their relationship with the country, not necessarily the individuals. And that's the same thing here. The way they're going to treat this ambassador, as it were, for Paul, reflects their attitude towards the one that sent the, amb the ambassador, which, of course, would be Paul, but ultimately it's God. So that's the second thing. Finally, the third thing is that, notice he says, he says in uh, verse uh, 12, he says, uh, I mean, verse 11, he says, so that no one despise him, but send him on his way in peace so that he may come to me. For I expect him with the brethren. Finally, the third thing, that he is instructing the Corinthians to do in the way of being hospitable towards Timothy is he wants them to give him a proper send-off. Remember, he dealt with this last week with himself. He said, you know, when I arrive, whenever that might be, okay, I want you to give me a proper send-off. Remember, we saw that the, the, the word there meant um, supplying a missionary in every need that they have financial, logistical, even to the point of sending individuals to accompany him on the next leg of his journey. He wants the same thing from Timothy. And he knew that there would be challenges here. Notice that he's, here he stresses that they should send him on his way in peace. In peace. Now you say, why would he emphasize that? Why would he say, listen, in addition to providing everything that Timothy is going to need for his trip back to Ephesus to see Paul, they should also be peaceful. Now, remember, there was vicious infighting in this church. We've seen that throughout in different ways, the, the haves and the have-nots, the Apollos camp, the Paul camp, and in many other ways as well, rich and poor. Um, and so they have a lot of infighting still going on. You know, I mean, he remember, again, they haven't seen his letter yet, okay? When they see it, he's going to bring these things up but you know how it is. You don't like I know how it is. I don't preach one message on a subject and have the idea that everybody's going to get it. Everybody's going to stop on a dime and change their behavior. 
That almost never happens. Maybe in a few humble souls, but usually it has to be done repeatedly. And it's the same thing here. It's undoubtedly, the, the infighting is going to continue when Timothy arrives. As a matter of fact, you can bet that part of Timothy's mission, now remember, he is coming in the same time period when Paul's writing this letter, and his mission has to also be to try to reconcile the factions with one another. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you've been the peacemaker. When you've got two sides that hate each other, and you want to get in there and you want to have them to reconcile with one another, anybody who's done any uh, well, marriage counseling knows exactly what I'm going to say here. What ends up happening is they, first of all, of course, they're angry at each other. But when the peacemaker shows up, they, if they have any inkling that he may be favoring one side over the other, the other side over theirs, what's going to happen? Well, often the peacemaker often is the one who gets attacked from both sides. It's not, it's not an easy job. And we can imagine something like that could be very well happen when Paul attempts, I mean, Timothy attempts to bring these people into reconciliation with one another. All right. So that's the first part of the lesson today, having to do with Timothy and having to do with the Corinthians being hospitable toward him, sending him off on his way in peace, not getting in the way of him doing his job, accomplishing the mission that the Lord and Paul had given him. Now, now Paul is going to change here, and he's going to turn to the subject of Apollos. Look at verse 12. But concerning Apollos, our brother, I encouraged him greatly. We'll see why he says that. To come to you with the brethren. In other words, Paul wanted him to arrive in Corinth as well, as well as the others who did arrive. We'll see those. We saw them already this morning, Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus. He said, I encourage Apollos greatly to come to you with those brethren, but it was not at all his desire to come now, but he will come when he has opportunity. Here's what's going on. Okay, He is, of course, he understands what's going on, and he understands the tricky relationship that is going on here, especially he understands uh, the, what's going on in terms of the factions, the factions in Corinth, and he's got to really tread lightly here, right? He has to, we know from the opening chapters, right in chapter one, we know that there were factions and they were lining up behind their favorite preachers. One is of Apollos. One here, we're, we're of Paul, right? We're of Cephas, Peter. We're of Christ, right? Well, they were all lining up. There were different groups, and they're hostile towards one another because they all are making the case for their favorite preacher to be the one that everybody sub submits to. Okay. Well, Paul understood that. He understood that, that there was some there that loved him, but he also realized that there were plenty that rejected him. And at this point, they considered themselves to be followers of Apollos. So when he deals with the plans of Apollos' travels, he has to be really sensitive to how they're going to receive that. One other thing about Apollos, and we've talked about the factions, but in addition to that, you know, Paul, Paul realized something else about um, their relationship with Apollos, and that is that everybody liked him in some respect. He was highly esteemed by the church as a whole as well. Um, you, there, you can, you can uh, try to surmise why. I'm not going to do that, but we do know there's some qualities that Apollos had that, that Paul didn't have, and, and likely that kind of contributed to it, all right? We'll just leave that alone. So Paul knew, now here's the thing, okay? Paul knew what was going on, the factions, 
that he would they, that they were trying to set up a rivalry between him and Apollos. He also knew something else. By this time, Paul knew the travel plans that Apollos had made. So Paul needed to to really treat this with a lot of care. See, he knew, all right, that Apollos would not be returning to Corinth anytime soon. Now imagine that. Imagine that they were really, really hoping hoping that Apollos would arrive because of two things, because the whole church loved him, and especially those who considered him to be the leader of that congregation, all right? So you can imagine they're really going to be disappointed, disappointed with the news. Now, who has to bear the news? Well, Paul really bears the news because he's writing the letter. It's him that's going to tell them, guess what? Apollos isn't coming, right? That's going to cause havoc. That's going to be something that's uh, controversial. So he needed to handle this news with the utmost care. He couldn't just say it in a way. That's why, by the way, um, that translation in verse 12, it was not at all his desire to come now. That can't be the translation. Why? That would inflame the rivalry. And it would, be, it would sound as if Paul was putting Apollos down or saying he doesn't really want to be with you. Nothing could be further from the case. In any event, Paul has to take it, take the, handle the situation delicately. See, if he didn't, you see, what would happen? They would conclude, well, you know what? Paul's behind this. reason that Paul isn't coming to us is that Paul probably hassled him and cajoled him and forbid him to come and see us. We know that's what's going on. And, of course, that's the opposite of what was going on, really. And we see that. As a matter of fact, Far from discouraging Tim, uh, Apollos from coming, he encouraged him to come. Paul wanted him to come. Now, that's kind of interesting. That's not normally how we would treat a rival. Boy, I can't be there. I'm going to send my rival there, and I know he's really popular, and I know that there's different factions, and then the faction, the Apollos faction is going to say, hey, guess what? Our guy's here. Where's Paul? You know, So... He didn't want them to, to be under the wrong impression. Okay, the fact of the matter is, is that he greatly encouraged Apollos to go. See, unlike the congregation, Paul did not see Apollos as his rival. And by the way, neither did Apollos. He didn't see himself as Paul's rival. They both saw each other as teammates, God's fellow workers. They worked together. We saw that in chapter 3, that, that Paul planted and Apollos watered. They were brothers. They were fellow servants in, in, in the Lord's work. They were slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why I say that the, the, the NASB and the other modern translations um, do a lousy job here when it says in verse 13, I encouraged Apollos greatly to come to you with the brethren, and it was not at all his desire to come now, but he will come when he has opportunity. Here's the thing you need to know. In the Greek, there's no his and say, isn't that the key word? His desire. It's not in the Greek. All right. Basically, it says the desire. Or you could put it actually better to say it's not at all the decree to come at this time. It's not at all. There is somebody's will here who has decided that this is not the right time. Uh, so, so that really is the best way to translate this section. All right. So it is determined that Paul would not come to Corinth at this time. But, of course, that begs a question. Well, who? If, 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 who is it, whose will is it here? 
who has made the decision, the determination that Apollos shouldn't go? Well, of course, the answer is that it's God's will. I mean, I don't know for sure, but I'm inclined, very inclined to say it's God's will here. That's Paul is talking about. And then it, and it is, secondly, secondly Apollos' will too. Why? Because Apollos was humble, and he would definitely line up his will with God's. And he wouldn't, he wouldn't step out and try to uh, do something that he knew wasn't God's plan for him. He wouldn't, he wouldn't make a decision like this without, um, as it were, consulting God or uh, considering what God's will is for him. So God at this time said, listen, I have, I'm determined that you're not going to Corinth at this time, Apollos, but there will come a time. And there was, it, it did come a time. There will be a time when God will open that door for Apollos to go to Corinth. Just not yet. Just not yet. All right, verse 13. 1 Corinthians 16, 13. Be on the alert. Now, Paul here is going to issue a series of short commands. Now, very often when we see this, and we see this several places, um, we saw it uh, in James when we studied that. We also, if we went there, we would see it in 1 Corinthians 5, the latter part. I mean, First Thessalonians 5, the latter part. All right, Paul issues these quick commands, all right? And he's going to do that here. Notice, verse 13, be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. Well, here's the thing. Those first four commands, the really short ones, right? Be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Well, it turns out in that time period, these were all military commands. They were originally military commands. And, of course, we know that we're in a battle as well. Um, and so were the Corinthians. They didn't really understand it. They, uh, part of the reason why, uh, as it were, uh, what Satan desired for that congregation was happening was because they didn't understand who their enemy was. They thought their enemy may be Paul or one another, but in fact... We know that the Bible says, we're going to go there in a minute in Ephesians 6, our battle is never against people. We'd be well to think about that and what's going on in our country right now. It's not, it's not the people that are the problem. I mean, they are a problem, but it's what's behind all this that really matters. And we're going to see that in just a minute when we go to Ephesians chapter 6. All right. Be on the alert. Well, you might say, well, be on the alert about what? All right. Well, be on the alert for the attacks of the enemies. What are the enemies? We know the enemies, the flesh. Right? We have sin in our bodies. Be, be aware. Be ready to take action. Don't, you know, don't think that that's not going on. Be on the alert. All right? For the three enemies, the flesh. I had a slide. I don't know where it is, but that's okay. Uh, the flesh, the world, and the devil. I can type it. Look at this. Yeah, Mom, those lessons I took at Mount Pleasant High School and typing really paid off. All right. The flesh, the world, and the devil. Yeah. All right. So, so you know, that's what it means to be on the alert. Any of us, right? Military, right? Be on the alert. You know, call the, call the uh, trumpet call. Um, the enemy's approaching. Be on the alert. Don't fall asleep now. All right. So then he says, what else does he say? He says, stand firm in the faith. What does he mean by that? Well, it doesn't mean their faith. It's not, he's not talking about that they have strong faith, and he wants them to stand firm in that. It's actually the faith. And when the, when the Bible says the faith, it's not talking about individuals. It's talking about what they believe. 
here in the context, it's talking about all the things that Paul has taught them in this letter, right? About the rapture, about the fact that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh, about the fact that the cross, the word of the cross is, is the power of God. And on and on, the Holy Spirit has baptized us into Christ. There are so many fundamental truths that Paul has taught here. Well, they will be attacked. They will be attacked. You have to stand firm. You have to hold your ground. You have to hold on. You have to be rooted and grounded in the truth. That's why it's so bad that, that too many pastors today are not teaching the Bible. Why? Because then the people won't be standing firm. When the evil day comes, they're not, they're gonna, they're, they've had built their house on sand. You know, emotion is sand. Uh, the, the, the rock is the Lord Jesus Christ and his word. And that's how you stand firm. All right. Who would be attacking these? Well, there's several false teachers. When he gets to Second Corinthians, he's going to address the false teachers and have them open up their eyes to the deception of what was going on around them. This godless world, right? We saw Paul that that he uh, he had to address the pagan world several times with their lawsuits. Why are you going out in the world and suing your brother and sister? Right, they're godless. They don't have any principles or, or, or integrity. Right, that was one. Um, the fact that they were um, dining in idols, temples, man, that was really setting themselves up for this pagan, godless world. And then finally, the principalities and the powers. The principalities and powers. All right. So let's now turn to Ephesians chapter six. Ephesians chapter six, because this is, of course, the classic passage on the battle that we're in. And we should all really pay a lot of it. We should never forget this. A lot of times, you know, uh, in our Christian walk, um, and it's the right thing, um, we should, we're, we're concentrating on loving other people. That is important. Of course it is. Um, but we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that we are in a battle. We are in a struggle. And uh, it's real and it's going on. But happily, there are some great simple solutions, weapons, and God has given us to always have the victory in no matter what we face from the enemies. Please look at Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 10. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. End of the letter. Now here's a perfect illustration of what I mean. The first five chapters were amazing. First four chapters, I mean three, amazing teaching about the body of Christ, right? Chapters 4 and 5, <laughs> how do we live in light of the fact of who we are in Christ and what he's done and what God is doing through the church? How are we supposed to live? This passage at the very end is saying, now don't forget that you have enemies that are going to try to prevent you from doing the things that the Lord wants you to do, to forgiving one another, to taking care of each other, to speak the truth and so forth. Let's look at it. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the, in the strength of his might. See, don't ever look to yourself for that strength, okay? That's a mistake. That's the equivalent of Peter looking, looking down at the water when, he's, when the Lord told him to walk on the water. Don't do that. Understand that all your strength comes from the Lord, that in and of ourselves we are weak, and in and of ourselves we are cowards, and it's only the strength that the Lord gives that gives us the ability to, to, to face these things. Verse 11. Now, what do we do? You put on the full armor of God. 
put on the full armor of God. That's a picture of you're in the military. Paul, at this point, writing Ephesians, he's in a jail you know, situation. He's a prisoner, and he has a Roman guard that's with him 24 hours a day. Okay, So he had, right in front of him, he had a fantastic picture. And he says, well, I see how the Roman army is equipped. But now there's, there's the way in which God equips us is so much more powerful. Put on the full armor of God, not the Roman army, so that you will be able. Where does our ability come from? It, from the things that God gives us, the weapons that he provides. To stand firm, hold your ground. That's what he's saying in, in verse 13 of chapter 16 of 1 Corinthians. Stand firm, hold your ground against the schemes of the devil. Yeah, we forget that. We forget that. Now, notice it doesn't say of the devil, right? It says the schemes of the devil. Because what happens is, is that the devil teaches, right, inculcates, passes on his schemes to the, to the enemies that are working with him, including our flesh, by the way. Our flesh has schemes to try to um, trick us and seduce us. So does this world. But especially the fact that there are principalities and powers. There are, there are hostile spiritual people, beings anyway, um, that are opposed against, opposed to us, that are trying to prevent us from being who the Lord is setting us up to be, right? He's setting us up to be the vehicle he uses to demonstrate his grace to the whole universe, including the fallen angels. They don't want that. Put on the full armor of God so you'll be able, you have the ability to stand firm. You'll have the strength against the schemes of the devil, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, people, but against the rulers. See, a lot of times we would rather it be against the people because we have this idea that, you know, maybe I can, over, I can beat the people. Maybe I can come up with a strategy or a political platform or a way in which I can win out in this situation. We would rather it be against the people. Plus, there's something about us that, well, not all of us, but many of us were competitive, right? He says, no, 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 no. It's not against the people. Throw that out. What it, well, who is it against? The rulers against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Now all of a sudden you realize, you know what? I don't have a prayer of beating those on my own. I can't see them. They're more powerful than I am. What am I going to do? Very simple. Take up the full armor of God. Right? God can see them. He knows about all the schemes, and he's giving you exactly what you need to hold your ground and stand firm and, and, and live and rest in the victory that Jesus Christ has already won. So how do we do that? We, well, once we put on the armor, we stand firm. Now, I'm not going to read any more. You can read the rest of chapter 6 at your leisure. But in the interest of time, I'm just going to give you what the, what the weapons are. All right? Yes, he's going to talk about the helmet. And he's going to talk about the sword. But in fact, the weapons ultimately all right, are spiritual things. Whoops, how come I didn't do that? Yeah, I need some work on this whole idea of posting, but that's okay. I'll get it. All right, there we go. Here are the weapons. You say, what are the weapons of our warfare? How are we going to have the ability to stand firm in the evil day? Here it is. This is how God enables us to do it. Truth. Right? That's something that the devil doesn't have. There's no truth in him. We have the victory through the truth of the word of God. Righteousness. We've been declared righteous by God himself. The gospel, the gospel, the fact that Christ died for our sins, was buried, raised on the third day, and whoever believes in him will never perish but have eternal life. That's the power. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians, right? 
The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. That's the power of God. Remember, our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's against the spiritual forces of wickedness. What was the answer to all the wickedness in all the universe? The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's had the victory. We saw this in chapter 15. <laughs> He's had victory over sin and death. And he, has, he had victory over the devil's scheme to keep us in fear all of our lives. All right? we, should not, we should not be afraid. He tells us over and over again, do not be afraid. Do not worry. He says, listen, he says, perfect love casts out fear. And, of course, we had a whole chapter in, in this letter of 1 Corinthians that we're studying on love. And that's no accident. All right. What else? <laughs> Faith. <laughs> that which is believed. We, we, rely on what's, we rely on the promises that God has given us. That's when we're under attack, when, as he puts it here, the uh, flaming arrows are coming at us, all right? Well, how, do we, how do we withstand those? What's our shield in that situation? What we believe. Right? The arrow might be, you know what? Um, you've done some really bad things. God is upset with you, right? Boom. What's the truth? What's, what do we believe, right? Well, we believe that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We believe that all of our sins have been dealt with at the cross. So there's no flaming arrow that can hit us when it comes to our sins. And you could go on and on, okay? Um, you've been unsuccessful. Um, you've missed opportunities. Um, you're a lousy dad. You're a lousy pastor. You're a lousy mother. You know, all these things that go through our heads. Well, you know, they're flaming arrows. Those are not, not from Christ. That's from the other team, all right? Faith. What is This is, again, why is it so important? Why are we doing this whole long series on eternal security? So that we know the facts, and the facts are in the Word of God, which is to be believed. That's how we win. Salvation and the Word of God. So that's how we have the victory in the evil day. That's what it means when he says to stand firm in the faith. All right, back to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 13. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 13. <laughs> Whoops. All right. 1 Corinthians 16, 13. You're going to beat me there because I'm still trying to figure out how this thing works. <clears throat> ah, forget it. <laughs> it's easy to type it. All right. Be on the alert. You've seen that. Right? Stand firm in the faith and what you believe. And then act like men. Be strong. Now, this is not, you know, Paul as the, as the football coach. Right? Act like men. Be a real man. You know? Get some more testosterone. That's not at all what he is saying. All right? We, again, always look back. Always look at the neighborhood. Always look at the context. What is he telling them about? about being an adult versus being a child. That's what he's saying. It's, it's, it's a real simple thing he's saying here. Act like men here. You know what it means? It means grow up. That's simple, right? He, said he couldn't feed them solid food, right? He had, to, he had to give them milk. Why? Because they were babies in the faith. He said in chapter um, uh, 13 of 1 Corinthians, he says, listen, when I was a child, I thought like a child. Now that I'm a man, I put away childish things. So again, it means to grow up. They were acting like babies. He says, don't act like little babies anymore. No more milk. You've got to take the solid food now. The things I've taught you, 
in this letter. You think now. Think like an adult, not like a child. It's childish to be living in rivalry. It's childish to think that you're so great just because the Lord has blessed you with more financial uh, than another person or, or that somehow you came from a better class when you uh, came out of the world. That's, that's baby talk you know, when it comes to the facts about who, who we are in Christ. All right, so that's what we've seen, these commands. I want you to look at verse, no, let's just look, be strong. That's the last one. All right, be strong. Well, you know, from what we've seen, that's pretty much self-explanatory, that the strength comes from the Lord. We saw that. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. That's what he's saying. Rely on the strength of God. Rely on the power of love, which is he's going to, talk, he's going to turn to next, right? That's what he's talking about. If they're rooted in Christ, see, what? how does an oak become strong? Well, through its roots. If the roots are solid, then the tree is solid. Our roots, you know, our roots, the rock, the root has to be the Lord Jesus Christ. And we saw that again in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. The foundation has to be solid. The foundation has to be Christ. And then when they then feed on his word, they will gain all the strength that they need to to be alert, to stand in the faith and act like men. All right. And then verse 14, right? The verse that captures the heartbeat of the entire letter. Here's a letter, again, where he's coming up with situation after situation he's dealing with that where they're really mistreating one another and where, they, where they're doing things that will hurt, you know? He said, you guys that think you're so advanced and you understand that there's really nothing, there's no idol, you know, there's nothing in the wood or the silver, he says, you know what, what you're doing, okay, it may not be a problem for you, but you're going to hurt and maybe even destroy the faith of another, a, a new believer. So knock it off. What's that? Love, putting, putting aside your, what you want, and thinking about how that will affect the other person. Okay, same thing with spiritual gifts. They all wanted to make a big deal. They want to attract attention, right? They, and he says, listen, you totally missed the boat when it comes to spiritual gifts. The whole point is that they're supposed to be for the common good. You're supposed to sacrifice, and you're supposed to perform this in love and selfless service, whatever your gift is, not promote yourself. So again and again, we see that there's something wrong, but there's a solution, and the solution is right here in verse 14. All right, Think of it. Let all, all you do be done in love. Imagine the problems that would go away in your life if, that, if you just obeyed that on a regular basis. Let all you do be done in love. You see, you become a person who is focused on other people's needs. That's what love is, remember? Right? Yes, love is patient and kind. At the root, love wants what's best for the other person, even if you've got to sacrifice something yourself. All right? That's love. If they were living that way, if the people that wanted to sue other brothers and sisters in the, in the pagan courts just stepped back and said, what's best for them? And the answer would be put aside whatever you think you're going to gain and realize it's way more important not to lose a brother, not to set up more friction between you and others in the congregation. <laughs> you just talked about being strong. All of our strength comes from love. It comes from love, right? Love never fails, right? Love is how we defeat fear, okay? Our strength comes from, first of all, and most importantly, God's love for us. We rest secure in the Father's love for us. We're strong, right? Even if we're weak, we're strong as we focus on his love. Our love for Christ, 
is another thing. We're going to see it at the end of the of this whole letter. You know, he's going to say, if anyone doesn't love the Lord, he is to be accursed. Well, flip that around. If you do, when you do, either way, believers love the Lord. We'll see this, okay? But he's saying that our love for Christ is our strength, and also our love for one another is our strength. We may come to the point where we're going to need to rely on that more than we ever have before, all right? Just like Paul is going to need to rely on the love of the brothers that, is, that are coming from Corinth through tend to him. All right. So basically, bottom line, here's the bottom line. Where's the bottom line? There it is. I probably could type this fast so I can cut face. I'm tired of hearing me say that. All right, that's not it. Well, here's the bottom line. The bottom line, very simply, is that love is the solution. Now, what was the solution? I just told you all the solutions they had to the troubles that the Corinthians had and that Paul had to deal with. This could have been a very short letter if they were ready for this at the beginning, right? Love is the solution to all their troubles, and by the way, and our troubles too, right? In their case, love is the only thing that would heal their divisions. You can't force people to do that. Just like, you know, if there's conflict in our culture today, you can't do it by force, by shaming, by hatred. The only way, and, and by the way, you know, Martin Luther King saw this so clearly, right? The only way is to love. He said, look, it, 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 I'm not strong enough to hate. It takes too much out of me, all right? I'm going to love other people. That's what he said. Love is the solution to our, their troubles and ours. Love would end the lawsuit. As soon as the, the one who's taken the brother to court decided to love that brother, he would, he would say, I'm, I'm going to take this out of the pagan court system. All right, love in chapter 11 at the Lord's Supper would have people embrace those that had less, right? not put them down and shame them. Love is always the better way. All right, let's continue now on verse 15. First Corinthians 16, 15. And we'll wrap things up today. Now here he's now going to turn his attention to some other people. Now he's, he's looked at <coughs> Timothy and he's looked at um, Apollos. Now he's going to turn his attention to three people that um, and actually and more uh, that are from Corinth and he's going to praise them. And this is an important turning point. I mean, right here, you know, throughout the whole letter, he has been um, shaming them for the most part. He's been telling them they're doing it wrong. Well, finally here in chapter 16, he's going to point to some saints in Corinth that are doing it right. Look at 1 Corinthians 16, 15. Now I urge you, brethren, I urge you, that you know the household of Stephanus. That means him and his family, maybe even the servants that he had, all who were associated with him. Okay, They were all on board with his leadership. You know the household of Stephanus, that they were the first fruits of Achaia. In other words, they were they were <laughs> they were among the first believers, and they blossomed into, uh, as we're going to see, great servants of the Lord. They were the first fruits of Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves. They freely offered themselves for what? For ministry to the saints, not self-promotion. They weren't angling for a better office. They weren't angling to have a faction. They were, their mentality was, we're going to serve the saints. We have the ministry to other people. And they did it. They carried it out. 
But notice verse 16. Here's where something amazing happens. Because now remember, you got to think about the Corinthians and how they saw leaders and how they saw strength and, and how they saw you know, those who are powerful and how they, who they thought well of and so forth. All right? He's now going to turn to the household of Stephanus. He's going to say, these are models of service. These individuals are models of leadership. Leadership. He's saying, these are the people that you should respect and obey. Who? The people who devote themselves to the ministry of the saints. The people who labor on behalf of the other members of the congregation. They're the real leaders. They're the real leaders. Not the ones that promote themselves, boast of themselves, um, take the patronage system that they had out in the world and bring it into the church. No. It's the people who are servants. Those should be the ones that they hold up as leaders and the great examples for how they all should behave. Again, why is that? Why is it that the servants are the ones? Why is he pointing to the household of Stephanus? Because very simply, they devoted themselves, they gave themselves to ministry for the saints. That's the criteria for leadership. That's the criteria for the role model that you want to be looking to when you want to pattern your life after somebody. Find out people who are, again, doing the work of the Lord, the work of the Lord in action, right? right? You know, love in, in, in deed, right? That's who you look for. They devoted themselves, given themselves to the ministry for the saints. They turned their world upside down. This statement, this one statement, must have turned the Corinthians' world upside down. Why? Because it totally rejected their own ideas about who they should follow. It totally rejected the fact that one should promote themselves into a leadership position. It totally blew away the idea that those who were, had, were patrons out there in the world because they were rich or because they were powerful or they had a position in the uh, government of Corinth or whatever, it, that is not it at all. That's not it. Please turn now to First Thessalonians, one of the first passages we'll go to today other than First Corinthians 16. Please now go to First Thessalonians. We're going to go to chapter 5. And we're going to look at two verses here, 12 and 13. 1 Corinthians 5, 12 and 13. Paul is going to tell the Thessalonians the same thing. By the way, they're going to be more receptive. Look at verse 12 of 1 Thessalonians 5. But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you. We have to ask ourselves the question. Who do we appreciate in the congregation? We should be looking at those who are working hard for us. That's who we should appreciate. You might say, oh, that's works. Yep, it is. Yep, but see, it's not works for salvation, right? There will come a day, 2 Corinthians 5.10, we will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And what will be, what will be looked at are deeds in the body, whether good or bad. So you bet we saw this. Why? why how do we take that away. Well, we take that away from the fact that we're, our bodies are going to be resurrected, that they're important, they matter. We had to present our bodies a living sacrifice. We had to present our bodies, we had to present the members of our body to righteousness and to do the work of the Lord. All right. Those who labor and strife, strive for us, you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord, 
Now, he's pointing here to, the, to elders, but again, even the elders, one, one would hope that whoever it was who chose the elders chose wisely. Again, the same criteria that they had been tested, that they'd shown their character and humility and their willingness to serve the others, right? Charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction, all right? That's an important part of the work of the Lord, too. And that you esteem them very highly in love, here it is again, because of their work, because of what? Because of their work, because of their education, no. Because of their vocabulary? No. Because they, they look like a leader? You know, they look the part? No. Very simply, because of their work. Right? Because of their work. What's the lesson here for us? The lesson is real simple. When we think about leadership, maybe we have to change how we view it. You see, he's teaching them, you know when you'll know who the real leaders are? You may wonder, who are the real leaders in this congregation? Well, you'll know them by their service and their labor for the saints. That's how you'll spot them. The ones who are legit, who have integrity, who, who step in day in and day out and, and live and you know, do the things that the Lord has asked them to do. Remember, we saw that this is, this is how do we find uh, how we should serve? Well, one of the big ways is to realize that we've been given a supernatural spiritual gift. Because remember, it's always the grace of God. Paul would say, we saw that in verse chapter 15, not I, but the grace of God in me. I labored more than all of them, but it wasn't me. It was the grace of God. Grace of God in our lives, of course, is, is the fact that we are saved by grace. The fact that we have been given a spiritual gift by the grace of God. All those things are gifts, but we are, we are called to exercise that, to work and labor in our gift for the benefit of others. By the way, Paul did that. We've seen that several times. But you know who else did that? Somebody else did that. We're going to, have to turn in a second here to the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to go to chapter 20. Yeah, that's right. The Lord Jesus Christ also did the same thing. He taught his disciples the same principle, and then he went out and did it, right? That's, that's another sign of a true leader, by the way, right? Somebody who does what he says others should do, all right? In other words, it doesn't do any good for a leader, let's say in a military situation, right, to say, listen, what I want you guys to do is I want you to scale that cliff, <coughs> and I want you to put your lives in danger, well, if he's not the kind of man who would ever put his life in danger, then he's not really a leader. See, a leader is out front and then turns and says to his, his disciples or whatever, now you follow me. You follow what I have done. That's what Jesus taught. That's what Jesus did. Look at Matthew chapter 20, verse 25. Matthew 20, starting in verse 25. But Jesus called his disciples to himself and he said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as is his, what he's saying, the role model, just as the Son of God didn't come to be served. God in the flesh didn't come to be served. He humbled himself. He came to serve. His whole life was in service to others punctuated by the fact that his death was in service to others. He served and he gave his life a ransom for many. He served us in the most amazing way. The one who had the most lofty position from all of eternity, God, God's son, became God in the flesh, and then one day he'll be crowned king of the universe. Why? Because he gave his life as a ransom for many. He understood the principle of leadership, the principle of royalty, the principle of aristocracy, right? Meaning those who, who, who have 
Um, the ability to should serve, and it's on that basis that people should be promoted. I want you to notice that, uh, go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, and we'll, and we'll wrap this up today. I want you to notice something else about um, 1 Corinthians 16, 17. Paul didn't give them a title. He didn't say, I now pronounce the Stephanus in his household to be the, the bishops, you know, or anything like that. Not even, not even elders, right? Not yet, all right? He's just saying, listen, I'm commending them, all right? I'm commending them for this service. And he says, now, just like they freely gave themselves to the Lord to serve you, I want you to freely submit to them. That's, that's what he wants. He wants us to submit to the people who serve the brethren and the people who do the work of the Lord. That's what he wants here. He's not ordaining them. He's just saying, listen, look at the facts. Look at what people do. Look who's really serving the congregation. I want you to submit to them. Now, why would he want that? Real simple, because when you submit to them, just like the disciples submitted to Jesus, you're going to start doing what they're doing. You're going to start serving the brethren. You're going to start doing the work of the Lord as they give you the example. All right. Let's wrap up today in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 17. <laughs> now, finally, Paul's going to bring this back around where he's going to marry up his needs with the, need, with the, with the ability of the Corinthians to help supply him in this time where he is and what's going on in his life. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 17. I rejoice over what? I rejoice that I was able to hammer you in all the areas that you were doing wrong? No. I rejoice over the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus. By the way, all my life I always thought his name was Achaicus. When I'm studying this week, I'm saying, that's not his name. <laughs> His name is Achaicus. So you're never too old to learn something. But in any event, what's he saying here? He's saying, I rejoice when they came to me. Notice the humanity. Notice the realness. Notice his ability to be vulnerable and to show his weakness. He says, listen, I rejoice over the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus. Why? Because they have supplied what was lacking on your part. They have refreshed my spirit. Paul needed his spirit to be refreshed, right? We tend to think that, you know, we put Paul on a pedestal and we think, well, he had the doctrine. He can, re he can refresh his own soul. Well, you know what? God also uses people to do the same thing. Now, here's what's going on. Paul was, was lonely. He missed the Corinthian saints. Oh, yes, he had to correct them. But you know what? He, he, it would be a lot easier not to, right? Why did he correct them? Because he loved them. He missed them, too. He wished that he was with them, and he can't be right now. Is that their absence of the Corinthian saints left a big void in his life, right? And then he turns to, this, to Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus and says, I'm rejoicing that they're here. They've given me what I need, what was lacking here in terms of our relationship. They've refreshed my spirit and yours. We'll see what that means in a minute. Therefore, acknowledge such men. What? Men who have the ability to come to you in your, when you're weak, when you're lonely, and refresh your spirit. Refresh your spirit. 
the gift of, of exhortation or just the gift of their presence, just being there. How many times have we had the experience when we're hurting and the mere fact that somebody comes to us? Maybe it's like Job's friends. They sat there for seven days and didn't say a word. Well, that was, that was comfort to Job, probably more comfort than if they had opened up their big fat mouth because we saw what happened when they opened up their big fat mouths and that wasn't too good. So Paul missed the Corinthian states. Their absence left a void in his life. That was what was lacking, right? They weren't there. He had a big void in his life. He missed them. So now you say, okay, so now here comes Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, and he says, I rejoice when they came. I was happy to see him. Why? Because, you know, that lack that I had, you know, that gap that I had in my life? Well, the fact that they have come has filled that void. They represent you. Now, I have, I have the company of Corinthians. They're refreshing my spirit by their presence. Their very presence with him gave him peace and gave him comfort. You know, that's why it's important, if you can, to visit people who are in the hospital. Not now, because of the crazy uh, coronavirus. But, you know, you can call somebody up, you know. Um, people that you know are down on their luck. People that will never be able to repay you, right? But your presence in their lives is a great comfort and peace to them. But I want you to notice that he said, they also refresh your spirit. Who's your? The, the, the saints in Corinth. You're like, wait a minute. They're not even with the saints in Corinth right now. How did the fact that Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus came to, to Paul in Corinth reflect, refresh our spirit? Well, very simple. Now remember, the lack went both ways. The gap was... A, Gap means that I'm over here, you're over there, and we're missing one another. They couldn't all go there, so they sent a representative, right? So now Paul could also rest in their presence. They could rest in the fact that Paul felt their presence when, when, when these three men showed up. He knew that they were representing and they carried with them, as it were, um, the, the affection of the whole congregation. You can imagine that that was important to him right now. No, because... Because, you know, he's, he's alone in Ephesus. By the way, he's going through a really difficult time, or he will, um, even more so. He's, 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 got, he's got a few around him. He's got a lot of enemies. The very fact that he would be able to see, you know, he knows that he's got to do more correction. He knows that the whole letter he's about to give them is going to be corrective in nature. He wants to make sure he, they know he really appreciates that they sent these men to be with him. All right. <laughs> so... So what's the principle for us? How do we, what do we take away from this in our own lives? It's so important to ask that question, especially here where it's not altogether obvious maybe. You know, I mean, it, it, verse 14, of course, is obvious. Let all you do be done in love. But there's so much more here. One, all those who sacrifice for the benefit of others should be respected and admired. All those who sacrifice for the benefit of others should be respected and admired. All right. We've got, we've got other things to chew on this week. You know, another question. Do we highly esteem the servants among us, even if they're doing something that's not very visible, something that maybe we, we wouldn't do, we don't think much of, cleaning the tables after, for example, or whatever it might be, visiting people where we don't even know they're visiting them and so forth, all right? Do we esteem those people? Do we, do we instead of people that are more impressive, you know, it's so easy to just, our natural inclination is to, you know, highly esteem those who have a lot of talent, right? But he's saying, no, 
highly esteem the servants. Are we doing that? Where in our lives can we allow God's love to change how we're treating other people? Where in our lives can we allow God's love in us to change how we treat others? We're still on our way with that. Do we really appreciate the power that comes from taking up and putting on the full armor from God? Do we really appreciate it? Do we understand what he's done for us in providing those things to us? And then finally, do we, do we take comfort in the presence of other saints? Do we understand the value of that? Do we really see ourselves as members of one of another? Do we really take to heart the fact that when one suffers, we all suffer? Are we sensitive to those who are suffering and anxious right now? Do we understand that what they most need right now may very well be our companionship? It's the best medicine that they could receive. All right, well, what, we're going to close right now. I just want you to make every effort to be with us next Sunday when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We're also going to finish the letter. Right? We're going to take on the final six verses here, and then we're going to be done, and we're going to move on to something else. And I will tell you something else next week, so if you're not with us, you won't know. But we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Please make every effort to be with us either in person or online. Because here's, here's the thing, you know, just like the Corinthians and Paul, here's the facts, okay? The fact is that you're all important to us, right? We're all members one of another. We feel your lack when you're not with us, right? I have one more thing to put post here, and I'm going to post it. This is important. This is really, you know... Really, where the rubber meets the road. The fact is that, that just like Paul missed the Corinthians in their absence, we miss you when you're absent. And just like he rejoiced in the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, we always rejoice in your presence when you're with us. So please keep that in mind. Please be with us whenever you possibly can. All right, let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you today for your word, for building us up and challenging us. Father, help us to do what you want us to do, as expressed in verse 14, that everything we do be done in love. And Father, we also um, ask that we would continue to preach the gospel to one another, not to the unbeliever among us, in a powerful way, in a simple way, that Christ is the God's Son. He's God in the flesh. He died for our sins on the cross. All, all of the sins, everybody's sins. He was buried, and he was raised on the third day. So that whoever believes in Jesus Christ as the one who died for their sins was buried and raised from the dead on the third day. Whoever believes will never perish but have eternal life. Help us to speak the truth to people and understand that it is the power of God for their salvation. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All righty, next Bible study on Skype will be Thursday. At 6.30, we again invite you all to be with us. Um, there's, a, there's always a link posted on the uh, website, on our homepage, to get, to get you there. If you, if you haven't been there before, we would ask that you would use that and come be with us. Father, we also, um, I mean, <laughs> we also, um, if you have any questions today, all right, I know it's a little difficult not being face-to-face, -face, but... If you do have any questions, I just really encourage you to send me an email at pastor at lbible.org, pastor at lbible.org. And I'm going to post that as the final thing. I think I can do this. Well, it's a pretty easy email, but I'll post it anyway.
All right. There it is. Mark's got my back. All right. So let's just briefly close and um, let you guys um, be on your way today, keeping in your heart the things we learned. Father, I want to thank you once again for Jesus, our Savior. And thank you for your word. Thank you for the members of the body of Christ. We ask now, Father, as we go back into our daily lives, that we would bring Christ and who he is with us in our hearts and that we would seek to have your love transform our hearts so that we do act in love in what we do with others. We ask this in Christ's name, by the power of the Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Pastor John. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you, Pastor John. You're entirely welcome. Thank you. Yes. Thank you, Pastor John. I miss all day. of you. Be happy to see you. Yeah. Thank you, Pastor John. It's Linda. Hi. Hi. <laughs> nice to hear from you. I mean, hear your voice. You know what I mean. It's nice to hear everyone. Yeah, isn't it? We miss you all. Yeah, we miss you too. We know you're with us. Hi, Pastor. This is Joe from Pomp uh, formerly Pompano Beach, now in Alexandria, Virginia. Oh, wow. <laughs> How are you, Joe? I'm fine. I am just so glad that I'm able to tune in and, and uh, get a good teaching. Well, I'm glad you appreciate it. Uh -huh. I'm uh, and just in case, um, mm -hmm. just to refresh everybody's memory, I'm uh, Carol Price's sister. Oh uh, yes, I remember. Okay, you remember when I visited? Um, I do. Back in February. <laughs> I sure do. Yep. Alrighty. Yep. You refreshed my spirit. Oh well, you I refreshed mine. Prob and probably, your, I know your sister as well. Yeah, how's she doing? She, she's fine. I keep yelling at her to tune in. <laughs> yeah, tell her we missed her absence. All righty, I will. All right. You all take care now. You too, Stay Joe. safe. That this storm is heading your way now. I know. I know. <laughs> I don't know how far inland you are, but uh, well, it, backing it, up the hatches. I'm I'm pretty <laughs> far in. Uh, okay, then you're probably good. Yeah, I'm. You know, um, outside of Washington D.C. Okay. So, not oh, too yeah, bad. Alexandria. Yeah. yeah, about about ten miles uh, southwest of Washington D.C. Yeah. I think you're fine. It's a beautiful city. Nice to hear hey, from you, Pat. Everybody, take care. All right, Joe. You bet. God bless.